Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the greatest podcast in American history, also known as Dang Dude, What the Heck Happened to America, also known as The Making of Modern America, if you're listening to this on Spotify. I'm your host, Dylan Shearer, and today we'll be talking about the Roaring Twenties, also known as the end of progressivism. Uh, If you're new here, this is a podcast looking at American history since the Civil War, uh, going through it on sort of doing about, uh, you know, 10 years a week, basically, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. Uh, And today we're looking at the Roaring Twenties, having just finished up uh, two podcasts on World War One. So we're going to couple a couple, we're going to cover a couple of things today. This podcast might be a little bit longer than some of the other ones. So buckle in. One, we're looking at the development of the consumer economy, right? So this is a different type of economy that had existed in the United States before, where more and more people are buying sort of goods from stores, from department stores, uh, and not making them themselves. We'll look at the end of the progressive era, right? Why that happened, how that happened. We'll look at prohibition, right? So the end of, you know, supposed end of alcohol consumption in the United States, and if did that really happen or not. Uh, we'll look at some roaring 20s culture. So, you know, this is a specific time. It has a name. What what does that mean, right? What does that all entail? And then we'll also look at some of the reactions to the Roaring Twenties, right? So how people were dealing with these new social mores uh, coming out of the Roaring Twenties. Three big questions here in this episode that we'll sort of look to answer, at least partially. One is how did the consumer economy develop and what did it look like, right? So I mentioned those words. What do those actually mean? Uh, Why did the progressive movement end, right? Sort of the last time we talked about it, the progressive movement was in its heyday. You know, Woodrow Wilson, this big progressive president, you know, had gotten the League of Nations, uh, maybe not passed in the United States, but it was sort of passed in the rest of the world. Uh, You know, every president for a long time had been a progressive, whether they're Republican or Democrat. So they seemed to be on top of the world, right? Why, Why did they end? And then finally, what did leisure, what did leisure look like during the 1920s, right? So you get new forms of leisure uh, activities for people with sort of new free time. So before we get all started on that, uh, one person I want to talk about here, a little biographical sort of side note, uh, is Clara Bow. She was one of the leading movie stars of the 1920s. Uh, the sort of silent, she started out in silent films and successfully made the switch to talkies. That wasn't the case for every actress moving from the silent era of films to, you know, films with uh, actual words and sound. There's actually some stories of some, you know, famous, like very famous silent movie stars who weren't able to make the switch because people hated their accents or hated their voices, right? You know, it was too harsh of a Brooklyn accent or something. But Clara Bow made that switch. She was nicknamed the It Girl. Um, that actually came, she got that nickname from being in the movie It. Not the not the Stephen King adaptation, obviously, had not written those books yet. Uh, but there was a movie called It, and she, you know, the It Girl, and that became sort of a phrase existing outside of the movie. And she's sort of considered to be the reason why I'm talking about her, the preeminent sort of symbol of the Roaring Twenties, right? She's the inspiration for Betty Boop. She sort of was very much the ideal of this new woman that had been coming into the fore. And Clara Bow was sort of representative, the er new woman, you know, sort of the, the apogee of the new woman. Uh, the new woman itself, right, this sort of idea, and I'm putting that, you know, in air quotes here as I'm talking, uh, had started developing, you know, since the 1880s, since the 1890s, really, um, this idea of women taking more and more public roles, right? Women had always been in public. 
uh, in the United States. But sort of the culture was like, oh, women should be in the household, right? They had, you know, the women's sphere and the man's sphere and the women's sphere was in the home. Uh, you know, you take care of the children. You would be responsible for educating them, for, you know, keeping house, that sort of stuff. And, you know, uh, there have been many, many women. Women always had to work outside of the house, but that was sort of considered, you know, if you were middle or upper class, that was sort of the goal, which you actually wanted to be sort of a good, upsetting member of society. But with the 1890s and sort of the rise of progressivism, right, we talked about how women uh, sort of led the progressive movement in a lot of ways, leaving the house, getting these college educations, doing stuff outside the house, that started changing. And people started calling this the new woman. In the 1920s, sort of, you know, 30 years after 1890s, had saw the more and more development of this. And you now see many white women uh, voting in their first elections, right, with the, with the passage of the women's suffrage amendment and beginning their careers outside of the household. And it wasn't necessarily seen as a sort of big scandalous thing. Uh, and Clara Bow was one example of this, right, a sort of a working actress becoming this huge, huge figure in the United States. So, sort of the these roaring twenties, right? This post World War One era in the U.S. was seen for a lot by a lot of people as sort of the good times of the U.S. Post World War One, U.S. became the richest country in the history of the world, though that wealth was not shared equally, right? And you know these numbers are all sort of iffy. Richest country in the world, what does that mean? How are you calculating that? But the U.S. was very, very well off, right? They had this massive industry, industrial sector, and most importantly. They didn't have to compete, really, with Europe right away because Europe's economy had been devastated by World War One. right? They had, these countries had poured billions of dollars into fighting this war, and a lot of their um, economic sort of structures, their industrial structures, manufacturing plants, had been destroyed in the war, right? They were targets in the war. Uh, so the U.S. sort of came out on top and became very, very rich very quickly. The thing was is that wealth was not shared equally, right? Just as we saw in the 1880s and the 1890s with the robber barons and these big monopolies, you get the same thing in the 1920s. There's still very, very desperately poor people in the United States working jobs that are supposed to be good jobs but not being able to pay for the things that they need to survive while you have these very, very, very rich um people on top, right, who are accumulating all this wealth because they sort of own these uh, industrial plants. The 1920s also saw not just huge changes in the American economy, but also huge changes in American culture. Uh, you see the increasing prominence of black culture in the United States and sort of mainstream culture. Uh, women are establishing new places in society. We talk about that new woman. There's this new sort of liberalizing culture coming around, right? And you also see the rise of this new consumer economy. You also see the end uh, on sort of the flip side of that, the end of calls for progressive reform, right? Sort of this reform movement from the progressives, you know, maybe not fighting for very, very leftist calls for reform, but still reform for workers, uh, you know, for poor people, right? You see the end of those calls and you see the rise of the second KKK. And the second KKK sort of reaches its height when you think of the KKK, this is sort of the time when they're reaching that height. The KKK, this is the one you think about. So let's talk about the economy first. So this growing economy uh, during the 1920s, U.S. sort of reached unparalleled heights in its economy. It would keep growing uh, past then, but this is sort of like new, new, new heights for the U.S. economy. As I mentioned, a lot of that had to do with sort of demand for Europe, right? 
Europe needed American goods, not just uh, the sort of governments, but also individuals in Europe. And so manufacturers were able to ship stuff abroad and sell them there, uh, sort of increasing demand. Industrial output increased uh, rapidly, as did per capita income, right? So there is sort of the wealth is spread unequally, but sort of the lowest amounts are, you know, the lower classes, middle classes are making more money at this time. You also see very low unemployment in many parts of the country, largely in response to the demand for, you know, more manufactured goods from the U.S. They need more people to make them. In 1929, right, it's just some stats here, uh, five out of every six privately owned cars were owned by Americans. Just consider that number, right? That's sort of a crazy thing. Uh, cars have been around for a little bit by now, and five out of six, every, you know, every, if you look at every single car in the world, five out of every six of those cars was owned by an American. That's sort of a wild, wild stat. That's like saying today, you know, if five out of every six TVs was owned by an American, right? That's sort of a wild thing to consider. Uh, but this was a very unequal economy, as I mentioned, right? Not everything, and I'll use a very old-fashioned phrase here, was as hunky-dory uh, as it seemed, right? There was massive corporations controlling most of the economy. Uh, you know, sort of the, the standard oil types, not, not standard oil anymore, but these sort of same types of, of companies. Uh, many Americans, especially farmers and especially people of color, lived in poverty, right? The white middle class was doing much better, even the white you know, lower classes are doing much better, but non-white peoples in the U.S. were still suffering, still living in massive amounts of poverty. Um, the gap between sort of the richest and the poorest grew rapidly during the 1920s, right? You know, today, to say the 1%, right, is to sort of conjure up a lot of things. But if you look at the 1920s, the gap between sort of, you know, the the top 1% and the rest of the 99 was higher than it was even in like 2007, 2010, right? In 1928, for example, uh, the top 1% had 23.9% of sort of the annual U.S. income share, right? That's a huge amount. They're also, and this is sort of setting up for the next week's podcast, there were very few regulations on the stock market. And sort of lots of people at this time, especially, you know, the, these corporations are using that to their advantage. Uh, they're making lots and lots of money on the stock market that seems to never stop going up. A uh, little foreshadowing here, it does eventually stop going up and, you know, something happens there. It wasn't just uh, the economy that was changing. It was also sort of the way that stuff was being produced that was changing, sort of what work looked like in the 1920s. Uh, part of that comes from Henry Ford. Uh, he revolutionized, quote-unquote, automobile production uh, by implementing a mechanized assembly line, right? So sort of no longer is uh, one person hand-making each part, right? Now it's sort of, you know, you get a lot of people turning a screw here, putting something on, and it goes, goes down, right? So you're doing one little job over and over and over again, sort of mechanizing that process, and this sped up production, sort of sped up the amount of cars Ford can make by huge, huge amounts. One stat here is after the introduction of this, sort of its refinement of this technique, uh, Henry Ford could make a car in 93 minutes instead of 12 hours, right? So that's a massive, massive reduction in the amount of time it takes to make a car, meaning Ford can make more cars, meet the demand, and sort of make more money. Companies, obviously seeing his improvements, copied these methods, copied these methods uh, very quickly, right? And sort of in this mechanized assembly line production 
where, you know, you have one person doing one small thing, went around the country in, you know, not minutes, but like very, very quickly, people started picking it up and using it uh, almost immediately. Uh, this was, it was very good for people like Ford, right? Made a lot of money off of this, but it was also pretty harmful to the workers, right? The speed uh, sort of increased the risk of injury. Uh, we talked about Taylorism in the progressive era. So this is sort of a continuation of that, but sort of you're doing the same repetitive task over and over and over again, that increases your chances of injury. You also get this sort of, and workers talked about this at the time, if you read diaries and stuff, sort of this increased alienation from their labor, right? Where before they had a hand in making you know, on every part of the car, they could really feel like they were making this actual car, right? Something with their hands. Now they're just like turning a couple of screws, putting a tire on. They don't really feel like that they're actually making anything, right? They talk about sort of, you know, they feel like automatons. Uh, they Robot wouldn't have been a, a word really in use, but they sort of feel like they're just like, they've turned into to machines themselves, you know? And so you really get a lot of worker dissatisfaction during this time. And also a lot of people sort of claim that they made worse products, right? Because it's so focused on speed rather than quality, you're, you're churning out sort of inferior products. But they didn't really stop Ford from making a lot of money, even if it sort of made workers not great. Uh, it wasn't just sort of this increase in technology, increase in production that changed the economy. There's also, and I've mentioned this like five times already, so we're finally getting to it, uh, this change in sort of the economy at the time, right? The introduction of this consumer economy, also something brought about by Ford, oddly enough. Um, so before this, right, most workers couldn't afford cars. Cars were a luxury item, uh, and all these sort of new industrial things that were being made were pretty much considered to be luxury items, right? You might be able to afford a shirtwaist, uh, you know, or you for a, a shirt made from a factory, but for the most part, workers were still making their own clothes, stitching them, you know, they'd have one pair of pants uh, that they would patch up if they needed to, and that would be the pair of pants they wore, just because they weren't paid enough. But Ford had this sort of, you know, genius slash devious idea that he could make his own workers consumers of the product that he was making. Uh, and to do this, in 1914, he increased his workers' wage to $5 a day. That was a massive, massive increase, right? Today, that sounds like nothing, right? $5 an hour would be you know, below the minimum wage, and this is $5 a day, but this is a huge increase. The typical income, the average income for a worker of this type of factory was $1.50 a day, right? $1.50 a day. Um, so now, it's increased, you know, 300, 400 fold in an instant. That's huge for a lot of workers. Uh, other companies copied him seeing sort of what that did, right? Because it's allowed workers to become consumers as well and massively increase the customer base for companies across the United States. So, right, Ford was making this gamble. He's like, I'll lose some profits in the short term, but in the long term, I'm pretty sure these workers aren't just going to save this extra money. They're going to spend it on these new goods, right? They want to see, they want to be able to have a car, like, you know, the cars that they're making. They want to be able to have one. They want to be able to, you know, buy a shirt that they're making. They want to do all this other stuff. And that gamble worked, right? Sort of the U.S. economy, because of this massive increase in wages, turned to this sort of consumer economy. This sort of became known in some circles as welfare capitalism, right? 
this idea, and Ford was sort of a big proponent of this, is that companies shouldn't just be places of work, but also these social settings, right? He's like, you know, he takes a very paternalistic view towards the workers. You know, he's like, I, I can offer you um, this place where you're talking with other people, right? Where you have friends, where, you know, we're a family here. This isn't just a job for you, right? And Ford and then guys like Ketchup Titan, very funny sentence to me, uh, Henry John Hines, right? You know Hines. Um, thought that their companies, you know, that they could like improve their workers, right? Not just um, sort of through giving them money, but through like personal improvement. So to do this, they did things like they improved sanitation in the workplace, uh, ventilation, provided health care and other benefits, um, you know, they said this to, Hey, we, you know, we're a family here. We want you to have good working conditions, but mostly this was done, uh, to get workers to work harder and to avoid unionization, right? Unionization was, and sort of still is for a lot of manufacturers, the big sort of boogeyman, right? They don't want to, these workers to get unionized and to demand more things for their work. So they're like, we'll give you some, you know, small scraps here and there. And it largely did work along with that. With the growth of this welfare capitalism, uh, came increased attacks on organized labor, right? So it was a sort of, you know, uh, fist in a velvet glove type thing, right? Carrot and stick sort of uh, happening. Many industrial sort of concerns, these big manufacturing conglomerates started what were called company unions, uh, where they sort of pretended to give workers a seat at the table, but then often overruled their concerns, right? So they'd be like, okay, we'll have a board. And our board, you know, we'll have we'll have three workers on this board, but there'll be sort of, you know, five company directors. So whenever there's a vote, you know, the workers will feel like they have a say, but will always lose these votes. They won't really get what they want. You know, they were sort of seen as like puppets. Um, but despite this, right, AFL membership, that big union we talked about, the American Federation of Labor, saw their membership decline from 4 million in 1920 to 2.5 million in 1929. Uh, partly that's just due to increased wages, right? People are don't feel like they need this sort of um, you know help from unions, help from labor, uh, and then these sort of attacks on labor from manufacturers. Uh, the 1920s, actually, there's this group, the National Association of Manufacturers (NAM), that really saw this the economic successes and economic changes in the 1920s as a chance to destroy unions once and for all. Right? They said, "This is now our time. We hate these unions. They made us give up our profits. Uh, we want to destroy them forever." And to do this, they organized and promoted something called the American Plan. Uh, they began lobbying often very successfully for what were called open shop laws. We still, these are still in place today in a lot of states, mostly in the South, also out West as well. All these open shop laws basically um, made it so that unions couldn't just automatically enroll workers. Uh, there's also the courts at the time were very pro-business. Um, they struck down sort of a number of progressive era laws against child labor, right? So more children were in the workplace, making it harder for unions to recruit them. And then in addition, you also see uh, radical groups like the Wobblies, the IWW, uh, targeted by new law enforcement groups like the FBI. So there's these, you know, lots of cases where the um, the FBI sort of comes in and tries to, uh, you know, crush groups like the IWW. Uh, so it's really an attack on organized labor. Uh, with this new consumerism, though, sort of moving on from that, we'll come back to these sort of bigger attacks and talk about the Red Scare in a couple of minutes. Uh, but Americans in general sort of love this new consumer lifestyle, right? They really embraced 
this. They loved buying new things. I think a lot of people listening to this podcast can also say the same thing. Uh, in addition to the increased availability of cars, uh, electricity became far more available across the country for much cheaper than it had been before, especially in urban areas. It would take a while for the U.S. to be fully electrified, uh, but sort of especially in urban areas and in mu- much of the you know country as well, uh, electricity was now available for cheap, allowing the increased usage of things like radios, as well as refrigerators, toasters, radios, vacuums, and sort of other goods all started to enter homes across the U.S. So you have this sort of new consumer lifestyle. This, the ways of life are changing for people in the U.S. Uh, one thing to arise out of this new consumer culture is sort of the advertising industry. Advertising had existed before, right? You know, you see the Sears catalog, but this brings it to a whole new level, right? You sort of get it as a real part, a sector of the American economy starting in the 1920s. No longer could retailers rely on word of mouth to sell their goods at a national level, right? If you want to sell in California, but you're starting in Iowa, you know, the time it would take for your people to hear about your product in California would be way too long. You would lose out on all your stock. So they had to start developing these successful advertising campaigns. And they start sort of developing sophisticated new techniques for this, for selling these new goods, right? You see the advent of these new full-color ads, much shorter text, all these sort of new techniques to sell goods. You, Betty Crocker, for example, was an invention of marketers, as was the popularity of orange juice, right? People in the, in the U.S. didn't really drink orange juice until the 1920s, and Sunkiss started advertising it across the country as a sort of healthy drink. Um, you also, our popular understanding of Santa Claus comes from this time, right? That image, Santa Claus, white beard, red suit, that comes from Coca-Cola advertising. Uh, so you get all these new sort of indelible American images coming out of advertising. As I sort of mentioned before, cars became very popular. And along with that came this new car culture thing, right? Lots of people, uh, there's many people in the United States at this time who owned multiple cars uh, while still living in houses without indoor plumbing, right? So they have to go to an outhouse to go to the bathroom, but own, you know, two or three cars, right? So it's this big new status symbol. Young people especially began to see them as sort of a symbol of freedom, right? The ability to get away from their parents, to go off without restrictions, and, you know, do what teens, what young people want to do, right? Whatever you think that is, that's probably what they were doing. Uh, along with this sort of new spending culture comes a decline and what was seen as a sort of traditional American value of thrift, right? This idea that you should only spend what you can, that you should save up, have, you know, a rainy day fund. Those sort of ideas go away a lot. And people began buying things on credit, paying in monthly installments instead of all at once, right? So it's, you know, if you have to buy a car, you don't pay the whole, you know, however much it costs at the time, but you pay like a dollar, two dollars a week, you know, ten dollars a month, right? And that way you can afford it then instead of having to pay for it now. Great. This was great for producers. A lot of more people to buy their goods. Uh, and by 1929, 90% of Americans, um, sorry, Americans purchased 90% of major durable goods on credit. It's huge, right? Huge, huge switch. Accordingly, uh, they meant that they had much less in their savings on average than before, right? As we you know, next podcast, once again, foreshadowing here, that's going to be a big problem. You also see huge 
soaring investment in real estate, right? People have some more cash from these rises in wages. Some of them, some people try to use it for investments. Uh, Florida became this huge, huge place for investment, for real estate investment, uh, until there's a lot of hurricanes in 1926 that killed 400 people. And this is sort of, once again, foreshadowing here. 31 banks failed as a result of those hurricanes, leading to this massive crash in the Florida real estate economy, right? Uh, something similar, uh, but on a much grander scale, would be happening very soon. People are also investing in stocks. Prior to this, you know, there have been individuals investing in stocks, but mostly very rich people or businesses, right? It wasn't really some guy on the street, some worker investing their money in stocks. But now, more and more regular people were investing in stock markets. They thought as a good investment, right? On the face of it, it was. Throughout the 1920s, stocks rose. There was barely a dip in the market at all. Things just went up. Seemed like a very safe investment. You also get the development of mutual funds at this time. You know, funds that collect a bunch of different companies. Uh, So it seemed like that was a much safer investment as well. And so tens of millions of dollars were poured into Wall Street during this time. As we'll see, those tens of millions of dollars would soon be lost. Along with all these cultural and economic changes, you also get a rapid change in national politics during this time. As I mentioned, sort of, you know, the end of progressivism was occurring during this time. You get the election in the 1920s of more conservative governments, uh, as well as the repression of more political, radical political actors. You get these business first, you know, Republican Party uh, dominating national politics during the 1920s, sort of this switch from the Lincoln Republicans uh, to this now business first Republican Party, right? That's much concerned about, you know, stopping out unions, ending radical uh, political uh, actors. And along with that, and also partly caused by the Russian Revolution in 1917, um, you get many American businessmen and politicians fearing that sort of this revolution could come to the United States, right? The U.S. could also see this radical you know, communist revolution in the U.S. Uh, the popularity of socialism had been growing in the U.S. Uh, many smaller towns, as I mentioned, like in Wisconsin, were electing socialist mayors. Uh, the Socialist Party even had a representative or two in the government. Anarchists or had also committed a couple of bombings and assassination attempts in the 1910s, 1920s. And so in response to this, Uh, In the 1910s, early 1920s, uh, many, many left groups in the United States faced massive amounts of repression by the U.S. government. One of these instances uh, was a Centralia massacre, where on Armistice Day and in celebration of Armistice Day, right, a year after the end of World War I, an IWW hall was attacked uh, by members of the American Legion. Uh, IWW members shot back and killed Uh, some of the American Legion members. And in response, uh, the American Legion hung one of the IWW members, and then eventually uh, eight of the IWW members were put into jail for this crime, and no American Legion members were sort of put in jail or even put on trial for this. There's lots of other instances of this. There's the Palmer Raids. Um, This was led by Woodrow Wilson's Attorney General, A. Mitchell Palmer. During these raids, Palmer arrested and deported hundreds of union leaders and foreign-born union leaders who more often than not had committed no crimes. And even if they had committed crimes, it was usually something that would have warranted maybe a year or two in jail. But now they're being deported uh, to outside of the U.S. Sometimes union leaders like Big Bill Haywood, who was... uh, 
sort of wrapped up in all of this, immigrated to the Soviet Union before the U.S. had a chance to deport them. Uh, Bibi Haywood actually hated living in the Soviet Union and tried to come back. Um, these Pomerades also sort of worked to create this idea that being American meant not being a socialist or not being a communist, right? Something sort of very much going against this idea of freedom of speech, but very forward, pushed forward by the sort of Red Scare by the Pomerades. Another big sensational case in the Red Scare was the Z- Sacco and Vanzetti case, um, sort of one of the most sensational cases in this. Um, Nicolo Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti were these two Italian immigrants and anarchists. Uh, they were also workers. Uh, they were accused of murder and robbery uh, and found guilty despite almost no evidence against them. This sort of like a seven-year case. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. It became this sort of celebrity cause for the American and international left. Uh, And in the end, they were found guilty and killed by the state of Massachusetts, despite all these outcries, uh, you know, proclaiming their innocence. Um, (laughs) As we know now, right, by evidence gathered years, 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 years later, uh, Sacco probably was guilty uh, of this. And it's sort of unclear if Fanzetti was. Uh, But at the time, that evidence wasn't available, and they were sort of very much convicted because they were anarchists, because they were sort of these immigrants. Also going on at this time was something called the Great Migration. Uh, Between 1910 and 1930, you get nearly 2 million uh, black people in the United States moving from the South to industrial cities in the North and the West. So not only cultural shifts, economic shifts, political shifts, you get these demographic shifts going on as well, right? Who the, the people in the U.S. and where they are are changing. Uh, many of these people uh, were fleeing sort of the violent racism of the Jim Crow South, right? Looking for better opportunities in the North. Uh, recruiters from these, you know, manufacturing cities in like Detroit and Chicago often worked in secret to, you know, to recruit people from the South and bring them up North, right? You know, if they were, people found out in the South that they were recruiters, they'd be kicked out, run out of town, so they had to work in secret. It's sort of the largest internal migration in the history of the United States. Uh, the sort of, the problem was, is that just because perhaps there wasn't the Jim Crow system, in the North, that didn't mean that race relations in the North were great. And in these, the sort of the early 1920s, late 1910s, you see the outbreak of lots of race riots uh, and huge amounts of racial violence in the United States, partly brought on by this great migration. Uh, 1919, for instance, uh, in the East St. Louis, there was race riots um, after white workers uh, first kept out black workers from the union, saying you can't join, and then attacked black workers when those black workers took jobs as strike breakers. Uh, So these were sort of fueled by racial animosity. Um, You get all these sort of race riots broke out all across the country in the United States, uh, 1919, Chicago had some of the worst. Uh, former Chicago Mayor Daley, the first Mayor Daley, was almost certainly involved in the 1919 riots in Chicago, attacking uh, black people in those riots. He was part of a gang at the time. Uh, and this sort of showed, as I mentioned, that Jim Crow laws might be more obvious in the South, but the North was hardly more racially progressive in uh, any of those areas. And this racial violence sort of continued after 1919 uh, into the 1920s. And you see huge amounts of racial violence, almost all of it against uh, non-white people. Uh, Of these, the Tulsa massacre was the deadliest. This has sort of recently come back into uh, sort of 
popular culture, as something people know about. Uh, but between May 31st and June 1st in 1921, white mobs destroyed the black neighborhood of Greenwood, uh, killing and injuring hundreds and leaving 10,000 people homeless. Uh, Tulsa uh, was home to sort of what was known as Black Wall Street, uh, which was a major source of wealth for many African-Americans at the time, and this destroyed a lot of that wealth. Uh, And this sort of only came back into popular consciousness recently with, uh, surprisingly enough, the the Watchmen TV show. Uh, The sort of racial violence very much continued, not just in the South, but also in the the north part of the United States. Uh, So looking more here at presidential politics, uh, talking about some presidents, can't forget them. Um, you get Warren G. Harding. He was elected president in 1920, sort of partially running partially on a platform to end a lot of Wilson's progressive politics, right? He called it a return to normalcy, this idea that Wilson had been out of the norm and they wanted to go back to where the U.S. had been. Uh, he dismantled many of the pro-labor wartime reforms that had, you know, given workers some rights during the war and sort of signaled a more a more hands-off approach to the economy, right? He said the federal government wouldn't really get involved in this sort of stuff anymore, unlike Wilson. Uh, sort of Wilson Harding's presidency was racked by scandal after scandal, right? Lots of his cabinet got caught up in all these bribe schemes and this oil schemes. But despite that, he was still able to maintain his popularity because the economy was doing so well. I'll just talk about some of these schemes here. His Secretary of State, Albert B. Fall, uh, was part of the Teapot Dome scandal, which was sort of the scandal uh, around oil uh, rights. His Attorney General, Harry Dotterty, resigned after it was revealed he was taking bribes. Um, and there are some other ones as well. Uh, Harding died in office of a heart attack in 1923. Replacing him was Calvin Coolidge, also known as Silent Cal. Uh, he won a rec- one re-election or one election, I guess, in 1924, easily beat out Democratic and progressive challengers, sort of continuing Hardin's policy of rolling back these progressive reforms, refusing to interfere with business, uh, you know, considering himself to be a pro-business candidate. Okay, so that's the president's. Uh, I told you we got a lot of stuff to cover today. Um, So now moving on to prohibition, that big thing we haven't talked about yet. Uh, This is sort of the last gasp of progressivism, right? Sort of we talked about progressivism dying out, its reforms being rolled back. Well, prohibition is sort of its, you know, last gasp here, the last shake of the the dead chicken, uh, to use a phrase no one has used before. Uh, So in 1919, uh, prohibition became the law of the land, thanks to the 18th Amendment. Um, It was now, this was sort of a combination of longtime lobbying efforts, anti-immigration sentiment, and the last gasp of progressive power. Uh, Partly, you know, Germans were seen as sort of this drinking people, you know, all these sort of Eastern European, Southern European uh, immigrants that had come in. Drinking was sort of a bigger part of their culture, and sort of this was also an anti-immigrant sentiment, right? The end drinking, so you know we don't have to deal with these immigrants. Prohibition, of course, you know, made it illegal to to buy alcohol uh, in the United States. Uh, you know, there's also things of like you could, you know, manufacture it and all these sort of workarounds, basically. But the goal was to make uh, alcohol consumption illegal. 
as I mentioned before, sort of right, this wasn't just in the U.S., also an international movement in some regards. Uh, it was very difficult to enforce, however. Uh, Congress passed something called the Volstead Act, which is allowing for stricter punishments, but that didn't really work. Um, still very difficult to enforce. You really needed citizen cooperation to enforce it, and many citizens did not want to cooperate with these laws. It was most effective in sort of small towns in the Midwest and the West, where you had these sort of very small towns where people, you know, were watching what was going on, but especially in urban areas and, you know, the rest of the country as well, but especially in urban areas, people across the United States continued to drink, often heavily. Uh, as a result of this prohibition and the need to supply these people who wanted alcohol, gangs arose. There's illegal, uh, you know, smuggling rings, basically, often based around ethnic identities uh, in order to make, distribute, and sell illegal liquors, right? Chicago has a famous history, you know, Al Capone and all these guys made their money and became gangs off selling illegal liquor, moving, moving on to other schemes as well, but sort of prohibition allowed them to come into their heights, uh, they became tremendously rich. Al Capone, you know, multi, multi-millionaire, bringing millions of dollars of years uh, doing this. And they were able, in large part, to avoid capture by officials um, by bribing them, right? Lots of, you know, policemen, officials were on on the hook here for taking bribes. And then they also did small favors for locals who then refused to rat them out, right? You know, Al Capone would buy the neighborhood turkeys or whatever, uh, you know, give people jobs. And, you know, no one's going to turn in the guy who gave you a job, sort of operating like those old Tammany Hall political rackets back in the day, right? Just more illegal. Uh, also, you know, lots of murder, intimidation, extortion going on here as well. But that sort of, you know, helping the locals out in small ways was a big part of it, too. Um, prohibition, really. I've uh, been fought for by the rich and middle class progressives. Uh, they really only wanted it for the poor, right? They thought, you know, all oh, the poor are drinking too much, making them not work as hard. Uh, but they still wanted to drink themselves. They saw themselves above sort of the, you know, the laws of prohibition here. And so continued to drink uh, heavily in their homes and often facing no consequences for it. Uh, there were dangers to all this, uh, right? Unregulated alcohol production led to the, you know, development of bathtub gin, you know, moonshine and stuff that people were drinking like ethanol, which can blind you. Also, you know, all the mob violence going on sort of convinced these people that, of the need to end prohibition. Uh, and it would end a few short years later in 1933 with the 21st Amendment, really marking the last gasp of progressive. Uh, it wasn't just progressivism that sort of made up this Roaring Twenties culture. Talk about a couple of things here in regards to that, four major parts of it. Uh, one, movies. Uh, movies was a big part of the Roaring Twenties culture. Uh, the 1920s saw the breakthrough of movies of cinema as one of sort of the top forms of American entertainment. We talked about Clara Bow already, but you also get Al Jolson, Rudolph Valentino, other sort of major international stars. Uh, there is also, you know, there are movie halls across uh, the country in every major city showing these big, you know, Hollywood pictures. And there are also these sort of ethnic movie halls, right? Ukrainian movie hall, Polish movie hall, you know, all these sort of stuff that were very much devoted to specific uh, groups that would show, you know, movies by Ukrainians or in Ukrainian languages. But then it would also show like newsreels from their home countries turn into these sort of big community centers, sites of activism and celebration. Uh, so you had these very, they were very local sort of community buildings in a lot of ways, these sort of ethnic movie halls. 
Uh, they would die out when the sort of these sort of big chains like AMC came in. But for a while there, they really acted as these sort of sites of uh, you know ethnic activism in these big cities. You get tons of sort of very famous films, you know, really good sort of legitimate art being made in the 1920s. You also get stuff like Birth of a Nation, which we talked about. Uh, these sort of racist rhetoric, awful propaganda films being made as well, right? So it's just sort of, you know, you get both sides. They're making crap in the 1920s just like they're making crap now. Um, music was sort of another big part of this Roaring Twenties culture. Jazz especially became huge during the 1920s. I've been big in black communities for a, a much longer time, but crossed over, quote unquote, to white audiences in the 1920s. You get stars like Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong becoming these huge, huge, huge mega celebrities, you know, despite having to play oftentimes in segregated places where, you know, they couldn't, you know, black people couldn't sit next to white people, but you have these sort of, you know, black celebrities on stage, right? These sort of sort of crazy things going on. Uh, increased sort of phonograph and radio production allowed for more people to listen to music in their own homes. Previously, you had to go to a concert hall. You had to go to, you know, the opera house or whatever to see a show. Now you could listen to music in your own home, making it much more popular. Sports, professional sports also get really big during this time. Uh, baseball had sort of, you know, been coming on to its own in the 1890s, uh, early 1900s. But now with radio, uh, people can listen to the games at home. becomes much, much bigger. You also get boxing, college football, all become huge in the 1920s. Successful players like Babe Ruth became huge celebrities, started being used in advertising. Uh, and you get sort of the beginnings of these celebrity athletes. You also get sort of the development of celebrity scandals during this time involving, you know, athletes, movie stars, jazz musicians, all these guys. Uh, with the increased number of celebrities came scandals. You get newspapers and magazines starting to report on the, the sex lives, the tawdry sex lives of the stars, right? To readers across the country, creating this new industry dedicated to following sort of the personal and professional lives of these stars. Uh, often very much the psychological detriment of celebrities. Uh, along with sort of this growth of Roaring Twenties culture uh, comes the Harlem Renaissance, uh, which is sort of a big, big part of this, right? Um, jazz really rose to sort of its prominence uh, as part of the larger movement known as the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, following those race riots in 1920 that I talked about, uh, there's a great swelling of activism uh, in both politics and art in the black community, uh, much of it was centered in Harlem. Generally, they wanted to sort of establish, these artists establish a new name for themselves, one that was sort of different from that of their parents. The Harlem Renaissance had political goals, uh, but it's largely known for its sort of contributions to literature and art. You get authors like Langston Hughes, or Neil Hurston, County Cullen, Claude McKay, all coming out of the Renaissance. W.B. Du Bois, the NAACP, and James Weldon Johnson all became sort of political leaders working with and around the Renaissance. Of these political people, uh, the NAACP sort of became the most well-known, most successful, challenging segregation laws across the United States. Um, but perhaps at the time, not today, but at the time, the most famous person to come out of the Harlem Renaissance was Marcus Garvey. Uh, he sort of straddled this line between political, cultural, and social movements. 
He's sort of the first nationally prominent black nationalist leader in the United States, formed the Universal uh, Negro Improvement Association in 1914, moved it to Harlem in 1916, sort of advocated for these celebrations of, of blackness, uh, as well as sort of this, quote, return to Africa idea, right? Uh, that black people in the United States should go back to Africa where they had been, you know, taken from, kidnapped from, back to where they sort of were from originally. Uh, to do this, he founded the Black Star Line, uh, the Black Star Line, a group of steamships to help make this happen, right? Chance recently uh, has been talking a lot about the Black Star Line. Uh, despite having over, Chance the Rapper, despite having over a million followers sort of around the world, uh, he was largely ignored by mainstream white and black organizations, uh, seen as this sort of ultra, ultra figure. Uh, but that didn't mean that he wasn't, that white organizations didn't feel threatened by him. Uh, in the 1920s, he was indicted for mail fraud and deported uh, to Jamaica, where he'd been born. Uh, in 1927, those charges were largely trumped up, completely false, uh, done so to get him out of the country. Uh, Garvey maintained this sort of international presence for the rest of his life, but never really reached, again, reached the heights that he had in Harlem. Um, you also have the new woman that we talked about with Clara Bow, right? Uh, women were sort of coming to terms with their hard-won freedoms, fighting for their new positions in society. Uh, they gained the right to vote in 1920. Women didn't vote as a block. Some people, you know, f- said that in the uh, in the the rise to women's suffrage, They're like all women will just vote, you know, as a whole, or they'll just vote for what their men tell them to vote them to vote for, right? Uh, but their sort of votes were evenly split between both parties, obviously because you know women have different political ideas. Uh, some activists had sort of imagined a brighter future uh, for the United States after women's suffrage, you know, being like, ah, women will lead us into the, into the future. But scandals like the Teapot Dome uh, sort of destroyed that idea. Uh, many feminists sort of continued to fight on, fighting for new rights, right, to still, you know, reach equality with men. Uh, Post-suffrage, uh, right, one of the big fights became the Equal Rights Amendment. This was led by Alice Paul, heading up the National Women's Party. Uh, It was first proposed in 1923, uh, basically just saying, you know, women have equal standing with men. Uh, Congress would approve it in 1972, so, you know, 50 years later, uh, but it would never be ratified by the states. And we'll talk about that in, you know, a bunch of podcasts later. Uh, but women across the U.S. continued to fight for equal pay and equal protection under the law. Uh, but this idea of the new woman, right, wasn't just a political idea. It was also a cultural one. It was especially sort of aligned with young, single, middle to upper class white women, right? So the new women, that was who it was talking about, that this sort of, you know, flapper aesthetic, right? Bobbed hair, knee-length dresses, public smoking, dancing, uh, support for contraception, uh, encouraged the loosening of sexual mores. Uh, This wasn't right for everybody. This new woman wasn't about everybody, especially not about non-white women. Uh, It was mostly upper to middle class white women, uh, single, well-educated. So we talked about all these changes going on. Not everyone liked these changes, right? Not everyone appreciated the cultural changes, the you know introduction of these new musics, of black culture, uh, and there's reactions to these changes. Uh, some people saw this all as uh, destroying traditional American values, and there was two basic forms, two main forms of reaction to these. Uh, religious reaction and then racist reaction. A lot of times, one and the same. Uh, but let's go through the religious reaction first. 
So some religious groups like the Protestant modernist tried to adapt their theology to these new scientific discoveries, right? They tried to change with the times. But others, like the fundamentalists, insisted that the Bible was this historically accurate document, that every word in it was true, which would clearly go against these new discoveries of, you know, archaeology and stuff. Uh, and both groups sort of went around the world preaching their version of of God's word. When people was Annie, Amy Simple McPherson, the sort of anti-evolution preacher going around the country talking about sort of the dangers of evolution and that it was this big lie. One of the biggest fights in this over evolution, which was sort of the big thing, uh, was the Scopes monkey trial, right? These religious groups hated that uh, evolution was being taught in schools. And this sort of came to a head during the Scopes monkey trial in Dayton, Tennessee. Uh, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, deliberately decided to sort of test a law uh, that prohibited the teaching of evolution in schools. They said, you know, you can't prohibit the teaching of this based on religious ideas. It's against, you know, all sorts of stuff. Became a huge, 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 huge case. Two celebrity lawyers, Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan, who we've heard about a lot, sort of faced off on the sides of this. Darrow was worked for the ACLU, and Brian was working against it uh, on behalf of the people who wanted to keep evolution out of schools. Uh, Scopes was the teacher at the time, uh, you know, deliberately taught a lesson uh, in on evolution, right, to sort of bring this case to the, to the fore. Uh, and Scopes was found guilty, right? Uh, very, very heated campaign, heated debates over this, but in the end, sort of the anti-evolutionist won, at least in court. You also get racist uh, reactions to this. Uh, immigration restrictions uh, come and start coming into place during this time, even more so than it had before. Uh, many wasps, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, thought that too many quote-unquote undesirable Europeans were being allowed into the United States and changing the culture in bad ways, right? You know, they're, they're these Catholics uh, bringing in all their sort of, you know, popery into the U.S., uh, and thought there needed to be a, quote, Americanization process as part of the immigration sort of standards. Uh, this idea that new immigrants should have to abandon their old, old cultural ways and adopt, quote, unquote, American ones. Uh, and American ways, you know, meant being waspy. Um, Congress, as part of this movement, passed the 1921 Quota Act. 1924 National Origins Act, severely limiting immigration, uh, right? Really, really reducing the number of people who could come into the country. Uh, and Congress would eventually also set up the U.S. Border Patrol and the INS in the following years to help enforce this. This was a massive change, right, in how the U.S. understood its borders prior to this. There had been some restriction of immigration, mostly to Chinese immigrants, but now this was a massive, massive re uh, restriction on who could come in, uh, really enforcing the borders of the U.S., really the first time that had been done, right? Creating institutions to stop people from coming in had was a very new thing. You also, as part of this, get universities and colleges instituting quotas on the number of Jewish people who could attend those schools, right? Seeing them as not part, as not really American. Um, you also get the rise of the KKK, as I mentioned, the second KKK. It's a re huge rebirth in the 1920s. They had been stomped out mostly uh, after the during Reconstruction, but they became reborn, quote-unquote, in the 1920s. Uh, it was even bigger and more powerful than the first KKK. In 1915, they restarted in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Their resurgence was inspired in part by a birth of a nation, right? 
um, this sort of hugely racist film that Woodrow Wilson showed in the White House. They became especially popular in many northern cities. Uh, places like Indiana were almost was almost entirely run by the KKK for a very long time. Like I'm talking about like the governor, the state government, right? We're all KKK members. Like white leaders in a lot of northern towns were all KKK members. It was just a thing that people did. Um, they also helped with prohibition, right? They really helped reinforce it. And the sort of reaction saying, you know, we have to protect these these sort of white ways, right? So con- conclusions here. I know this is a pretty long podcast. Thanks for bearing with me. Hopefully uh, some interesting stuff in here. Uh, so 1920s saw massive changes in the American economic, political, and social life, right? Uh, not cha- Changes are beneficial for some, but not for everybody. Uh, many people were working to resist those changes, uh, often successfully, uh, trying to roll them back. All right. Uh, so next podcast is going to be about the Great Depression, sort of foreshadowed a lot of that. Uh, but thank you and have a great rest of your day.